Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, again, we to the throne of grace, remembering that the pathway to the throne of grace is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. We ask that your Holy Spirit, who has come to reveal those things of him and in this age, the church age, through the New Testament, that that uh, inspirer of Scripture, the preserver of Scripture, would also be the teacher of Scripture, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're uh, on our last uh, lesson here, and we're going to not, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to finish uh, the chapter on Pentecost. We're almost done, but what we are going, what we're doing here to get the flow of events, is that this event of Pentecost is going to. Uh, give us a handle or an event that locks up to to several doctrines. Uh, And you can remember these four doctrines. There's many, many truths associated with Pentecost. This is not exhaustive by any means. This is just the key basics. But you can always remember it with the acrostic ribs. R meaning regeneration. I meaning indwelling. B meaning baptism of the Holy Spirit and S meaning the seal, sealing work of the Holy Spirit. And there are other things that he does. He intercedes, he gives spiritual gifts, and all the rest. But this is not a class in systematic theology either, as well as not being a class in exegesis. It's just to give the framework of the just basic outline of Scripture. So tonight, we're going to deal with just one of these four truths, these things that come out of the, uh, the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit to the, to the earth and indwelling believers. <clears throat> so, uh, I guess the best way of looking at this is to think about all of history from creation through the fall. Uh, one of the critical elements would be, of course, the judgment and, uh, of the flood. But uh, I'm thinking here of the call of Abraham and the bringing out into existence this counterculture. And then we get down to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ when God becomes incarnate and this national entity called Israel that existed from the time of the Exodus to that time, that Israel is given a moment of decision in history as to whether or not that the nation wants to bow the knee officially and nationally to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are given two invitations, one during Jesus' life, and two after he died, rose, and ascended to heaven, Peter, the apostle, gives a second invitation to the nation. Both invitations are rejected, and nationally, Israel is sidelined for a period of history, and in her place, there arises this new thing called the church. That's our age. I can't stress enough that the contribution of dispensational theology is very important at this point because what it does, it distinguishes the modus operandi of the Holy Spirit for the church versus the modus operandi of the Holy Spirit for Israel. And the Holy Spirit works differently from different perspectives in both these ages here. And over the, over the history of the church, um, 
there has been a respect for the scriptures and so forth, but there hasn't been a discernment as to what commands apply to the church and what commands apply to Israel. Uh, there's been a lot of sloppy thinking here because people say, well, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, they reason that because God is immutable, his modus operandi, or way of working, is immutable. And that's not true. And if forgetting the church and Israel distinction, let's go back in time and think of the Gentile period. Was God's work different prior to the call of Abraham than it was after the call of Abraham? Of course it was. Before the call of Abraham, God the Holy Spirit worked with all national entities, with all people's groups. He was revealing, he had his Melchizedeks all over the place, who were his chosen prophets, to carry on the Noahic Bible in every continent, to every linguistic group, to every people group. And as these people groups resisted and grieved the Holy Spirit, he restrained their sin for a while, Genesis 6-3, until the Day of Judgment. And when the Day of Judgment came, after that period, when civilization was uh, reestablished, so to speak, and you have all the sons of Noah, Japheth, so forth, recolonize the continents, now we have the people groups and so on. Linguistic, uh, obviously, the linguistic groups post-date the flood. But... My point is that whether it's prior to the flood or after the flood, it was a way the Holy Spirit had of working corporately with the human race, all parts of it. Starting with the call of Abraham, that is not true. After the call of Abraham, there coexists a modus operandi of working with Gentiles and a modus operandi of working with Israel. And there's a bifurcation that happens in history at that point. Obviously, the work with the Gentiles becomes very minimal and with Israel becomes maximal. And so the emphasis is always here on Israel and that's the heart of the Old Testament. What is God doing through this entity called Israel? Now, if you'll turn, what we're going to do here, and we better start with where, in John 14 again, because John 14:17 is a verse that we have to look at very, very carefully. John chapter 14, verse 17. And language is important in Scripture. Sentence structure is important. I never forget, I was uh, never really gung-ho on syntax and language, although in, in high school I had four years of Latin, and I learned more grammar and vocabulary in my Latin course than I did it in all the English courses combined um, and served me well in other studies. Very useful language to not learn, by the way. Anyway, the point is that years later, when I started writing the first edition of this thing, uh, there was a lady who was PhD in, it was on a university campus, professor of English literature, and she was correcting my sloppy grammar as I, <laughs> she went through this thing. Every other page is read. Um, and she made an interesting point to me. She said, you know, it's so important to follow rules of grammar in language because those are the rules that are used to interpret the language. And they operate whether we like it or not. And one of the cases that she gave me, and it w was interesting, we, 
in this framework, this is just the first draft of the second edition that we're working with now, but in the final draft of the first edition, what she had me do, which I thought was very interesting, was every time that I wrote about a truth of scripture, she had me put all the verbs in the indicative mood. This, that, the fourth. When I started working with the unbelief, she had me use subjunctive modes. And the shift in the mood of the verb. Uh, if this were true, da 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 da. Now, it, it gives a sort of suspended uh, judgment. And the idea there is it's, it's a weaker force. You're not indicating an absolute truth or something certain and objective. And then she went on and gave me some illustrations and she pointed out how because most of us use the language orally more than we write, we tend to be sloppy. If you listen to yourself, um, many times you'll hear, if you take a tape recording of yourself while you're talking or think about what you're saying, you'll realize that how frequently we never complete a sentence when we're talking. We start a sentence and we get a thought and we switch and so forth. And our oral speech is not that well organized. And when you write, it really should be an organized approach. And it prevents a lot of misinterpretation. One of the analogies that she used with me, that made sense to me, was, you know, if you write computer code, when, when the compiler operates on that code, when you write the instructions to the computer, it is very uh, finicky about how you put the code in there. And if you don't put the code in there right, it jams it or can even misinterpret it and cause all kinds of problems. Because the machine is absolutely stupid. One of the great summaries of what a computer is was given to me many, many years ago by an MIT professor who said, guys, just remember that computers are simply morons that think very fast have absolutely no sense whatsoever internal to themselves. And the point is that you have to communicate in an exact code. Otherwise, you get a problem. Now, it's very interesting that intellectuals have a problem with us, Christians. When they hear about we're Bible-believing Christians, we believe in an inerrant Bible. And so for some reason, this creates a big controversy with them that anything could be in language and be inerrant. Like, language has to be errant. Well, you know what's peculiar about that? Is that the very same intellectuals think nothing of using computers where the code has to be inerrant. Day after day, they're using inerrant computer code. But they're fussing at us, fundies, for saying the Bible's inerrant. And I find that always kind of intriguing. Okay, over to the the language in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament here. John 14, 17. Here, it, things hinge on a preposition. If you look at John 17, 14, verse 17, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, there's the distinction between the Holy Spirit modus operandi under the Old Testament economy and in the New Testament economy. Notice the tense of the verb. He now, a present tense, abides with you. 
then the next verb is in the future tense. And he will be in you. Now, folks, that's different. There's something different that's going to happen with Pentecost. And, the Holy, and, then, and Jesus gives a whole bunch of things in the rest of John chapter 14, 15, and 16. The whole thing is an exposition of what's coming. So right here, at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, before his ascension into heaven, he was warning the disciples that the Holy Spirit had been with them and would be in them. Those are locative type prepositions. And they're looking at location. Now, the word in is in what? In believers in the New Testament age. So where is the base of operations of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament era? It's no longer from heaven. The Holy Spirit's basis of operation is the living, visible church on this planet. That's the stunning assertion here. That the base has moved from heaven down to earth and the Holy Spirit is now operating on earth. So there's been, at the point of the Pentecost, there was this, this shifting, this invasion of planet earth, so to speak. And what is so fascinating about this is that, as I mentioned when we started this whole event weeks and weeks and weeks ago, that isn't it striking that most science fiction today that you wear always has the invaders coming to Earth. And they're always evil. And the Earth, the people, are always, we're defending against these space invaders. Space invaders always kind of connote evil. Well, it's almost a perversion, almost 180 degrees wrong, because Pentecost is an invasion from heaven of the Holy Spirit into this sphere of Earth. The, the God of this world has been here all the time. The new invader is the Holy Spirit. And so it's actually the other way around. The Earth is an alien, fallen star, fallen planet, and the Holy Spirit has come to this fallen planet. All right, that's the preposition. Now let's take a sample from the Old Testament of how the Holy Spirit worked. Now, in the notes on page 45, I give you many samples, and we're not going to go to all of them tonight. But one of them we are going to go to is Exodus chapter 31, verse 3. Here is a classic instance of how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament in a way different completely than how he works today. Now, does this mean God changed his character? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's just that God has variations in the way he works. I mean, doesn't an artist have variations in the way they paint a painting? Doesn't an author have variations in the way they write? Well, why can't God have variations in how he administers history? I don't know what the problem is here. But particularly, you'll find people who come out of a strong Reformed background just get all upset over this dispensational differences from one age to the next in the Holy Spirit. It's like it's heresy or something. Never understood what, what the problem is here. Exodus chapter 31, verse 3. Now look at this verse. This describes a work of the Holy Spirit under the Old Testament system. Verse 2. See, I have called by the name Bezalel, Bezalel, 
the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, the cutting of stones, and so on. This is part of the preparation for the tabernacle. Now, what is the effect of the Holy Spirit in verse 3 and 4? Does it have anything to do with his character? Or does it have something to do with his soulish skills? His manual skills? There, the Holy Spirit is giving the uh, craftsmanship. Now, that's my point, and there's a lesson in this. Because where you see the Holy Spirit working under the Old Testament economy, he is building and protecting the nation Israel. Why is this man filled with the Spirit at this point? To construct the physical tabernacle for whom? For himself? No, for the nation Israel. So what is the goal and purpose of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? It is to construct this thing called Israel so that Israel will be the conduit of the Messiah. Israel will be the conduit of the Scriptures. Israel will have impact historically. So, all of this has to do with everything that, that nation Israel needed, the Holy Spirit was providing. Can you think of a very famous story in the Old Testament? Uh, kids love the story, the story of the big strong man. Now, who was it that came upon Samson and gave him strength? It wasn't like that he was Arnold Schwarzenegger. He lifted weights every day. I don't think that's the story. He may have been a, a strong man in his physique, but the Bible makes it very, very clear that Samson's strength waxed and waned. He didn't have it constantly. He had it when what was at stake? When the nation Israel was at stake. When the welfare of Israel was at stake. Was the work of the Holy Spirit in Samson uh, one to edify his personal character? I don't think so. Samson, as I've taught years ago, actually was God's goon that started wars. Because the nation was trying to settle into a syncretism with paganism. Very bad in the end of the book of Judges. And God needed somebody to stir up a war. You say, well, why, why did God have to stir up? To get the people divided. I mean, you have to divide the Jews away from the pagans. And if it takes a war to do it, let's have a war. And so what was Samson's role in life? Start wars. What was one of the things he did to the pagan economy? He absolutely almost ruined the economy of Philistia. Remember what he did? Waited until the harvest came, and then he took foxes, and the Humane Society had all kinds of problems with this one, uh, and put uh, torches on the tails and let them run through the wheat fields. Incinerated thousands of acres. I mean, we don't think of the economic damage that man did. And, of course, when you strike at the economy of a nation, you take the nation down with you. It was a devastating thing for Samson to have done that. And then in his last moments of his life, what did he do? He took down the Temple of Dagon. They thought they were going to have a little show. He said, I'll give you a show. And even in that last moment, he asked that God would avenge him. I mean, this guy, right to the end, wasn't one of your shining stars as far as his character was concerned. 
But he was a magnificent example of the Holy Spirit working with and on people in the Old Testament to build, construct, defend, and otherwise protect the nation of Israel. That's the idea in the Old Testament. Now, if you go to the Kings, let's go to Psalm 51. Because here's David's confessional psalm. And this comes across in a lot of Christian liturgy. And actually, it's a, it's a wrong application of Psalm 51, but I'm sure you've seen it in various liturgies and various denominations. Um, it's, you know, it's nice to confess sin, but in, in Psalm 51, the confession of sin that's going on here is confession of sin under the Old Testament economy. So in Psalm 51, when David's going on about his sin, you'll notice that he comes to this place in verse 11. And what does he say? He says, Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take the Holy Spirit from me. And there have been those in the church, you know, godly people, nothing wrong with them. They meant well. And they, they say, well, you know, this is a confession psalm, so I'll pray the confession psalm. And they will pray, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Sorry, that's not true for the church age. Holy Spirit abides forever. So, there's a difference. Now, why was David concerned about the Holy Spirit being taken from him? What was the Holy Spirit doing in David? Let's think about the biography of David a moment. Let's go back in time historically. Before David was anointed king, who had previously been anointed king? Saul. So there was a house of Saul, a dynasty of Saul. Now, had Saul, you know, obeyed God, presumably his son, the crown prince, Jonathan, would have attained the throne of Israel. But the old man really screwed up in his life before God. And God said, that's it. I'm going to replace not just Saul with David. I'm going to replace the dynasty of Saul with a dynasty of David, right? Because God could have killed Saul and had Jonathan sit on the throne. So it's not just a rejection of Saul. It's a rejection of the house of Saul. So you have a dynastic shift that's going on. And what is implicated apparently, and by the way, when that happens, the, if you trace the references to the Spirit, you'll see the Spirit comes onto David. With the dynastic shift, there's a Spirit shift. So when David in Psalm 51 prays that, cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, he probably is also thinking, not just personally of the Holy Spirit, but he may be thinking of the fact, take not down my house, let the, that, let the Davidic dynasty endure. Of course, he had a promise it would endure. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. But the idea here is that don't read New Testament ministries of the Holy Spirit backwards into the Old Testament carelessly. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit did many wonderful things in the Old Testament. Second paragraph from the bottom on page 45 of your notes, I list all the ministries of the Holy Spirit that continue into New Testament times. You see that paragraph says, prior to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit sustained the universe. Does he still sustain the universe? Yes. Has he always sustained the universe? Yes. So that ministry hasn't changed. 
Next ministry. He generated the Old Testament. Well, that was finished when the Old Testament was finished. But in the New Testament, he generated what? The New Testament. And in the future, when the prophets are reestablished during the tribulation, who's going to empower those prophets? Holy Spirit. He restrains sin in the generation of Noah. It said specifically in Genesis 6.3. Does he still restrain sin? Yes. So, that hasn't changed. Let's continue. But he had a special role in Israel. He worked to empower Joseph as a ruler in Egypt. Is this preferring Jew over Gentile? You bet. He's got a Jewish guy on a Gentile throne. Joshua is a key leader of the nation. Special natural skills, we just saw that. Special way later is uh, when the judges, prophets, and kings. Okay. So that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit with the people. And the Holy Spirit was with people all the way up to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ because in the case of the Lord Jesus, how was the Holy Spirit with the disciples? Let's think about that one. Who did many of the miracles through the Lord Jesus? Holy Spirit. So since the Holy Spirit did the miracles, Jesus could say the Holy Spirit has been with you. And clearly in the context of that John 14 passage, he's talking about himself. Holy Spirit's with you. Okay, now if you'll come over on your notes to page 46, we now move into this first of the great doctrines of the church age, the doctrine of regeneration. Now this gets tricky. Now be careful what I am saying and be careful what I'm not saying. I am not saying that in the Old Testament there wasn't some sort of ministry of the Holy Spirit to empower people to love the Lord, empower people to pray, empower people to live righteous lives. But it was known in the Old Testament as circumcision of the heart. That was the term. It was not, the word regeneration was not used. And I believe it wasn't used for a reason. It was a circumcision of the heart ministry. We don't know all of it, but you certainly, by reading the book of Psalms, you know the heart of a righteous person. And the Old Testament resonates with our hearts. So, whatever the Holy Spirit did in their lives, it was remarkably parallel to what he's doing in our lives. So, then, what is unique about regeneration? What we're studying now is, under the Old Testament... And under the New Testament, we have regeneration. Why are we doing this contrast? Because we want to see what's new. We want to see what is peculiar to this age. What assets, what possessions do we have in Christ that the Old Testament saints did not have? Okay, one of the sources, if you turn to John, John is filled with a language of regeneration and being born again. In fact, that's where the term comes from. So, if you look at John uh, chapter 1, Gospel, verse 12, verse 13. Now, this phrase, being born again, originally was used, when people used it accurately... It was used of regeneration. Unfortunately, the way it is used today, it has broadened in its meaning. It's gotten shallower and broader. 
originally it was a very narrow term and referred to a certain thing. So we want to look at what the certain thing is. Under the paragraph I have there with regeneration, the word, the noun, regeneration underlined, I give you some of the original connotation. If you were to do a concordance study, you'd come to these conclusions. It's not something I made up. It means born again in the true sense, not in the often sloppy use of the term for the process of conversion. Regeneration does not refer to the human side of conversion, the way it originally was meant. It's talking about the divine side. It's not talking about human experiences. It's talking about a mysterious something that instantaneously is done in a, in a microsecond when a person trusts in Jesus Christ. We, can't, we don't know what all's involved, but it's an instantaneous thing. It's not a process, though obviously like birth, it could be kind of like a spiritual pregnancy happened before it. The idea is that there is a birth at a moment in time, and it is purely the work of the Holy Spirit, and it must be very carefully pointed out that it is the Holy Spirit's work. Because today, we live in a day of psychology this, psychology that, psychiatry this, psychiatry that, and we're always worried about our inner selves and what our little child did back when mama dropped me on my head and all the rest of the stuff that goes on in, in the name of therapy. That has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit and regeneration. Get away from that. Regeneration is not felt. It's not a tingly feeling. It is a work that God does in the human heart somehow, some way, and we have no way of doing it. And you could go into an MRI, and the MRI before and after wouldn't look any different. It's something to do with our spirits. And that's what's being born again. Being created again. And let's not diminish what this means. To be born again. Actually, John uses a Greek word that has a nuance of being born from above as well as being born again. And you really can't tell. John's kind of sneaky the way he does these things. He really means both. Not contradictory meanings, by the way. There's a sense of being born again because you were born one time. Now you're born spiritually. But then there's also the sense is you're born of the earth. And at regeneration, you're born from the Holy Spirit down from heaven. So you're born from above and you're born again. But the emphasis here is on a miracle. It is a miracle. It is nothing less than a miracle. You can't force it on somebody. You can convince a person of the gospel. You can pray for them. But you cannot force anyone to be born again because we don't have the lever. We don't pull the lever. God the Holy Spirit pulls the lever. And He may not do it when we want Him to pull the lever. So... He is the one who controls it. So, from the very start, when we talk about regeneration, we are not talking about experience. We are not talking about conversion. Those are all works of the Spirit. Don't get me wrong, the Spirit is involved in that. But that's not the term regeneration. It's talking about this instant thing that happens. It's recreation. Now, if you turn to John's epistle, we get into the hard stuff. Because it's in John's epistle, 1 John particularly, where John goes into a lengthy exposition of the truth of possessing eternal life. And in 1 John 5, verse 12, 
verses 11 and 12, actually, John links eternal life with Jesus Christ. So, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Now, this is not an easy passage of Scripture in our culture today. There's a lot of resistance. Now, some of you who've been in the Word of God for many years, you'll have this, you don't have a problem. But I am convinced that most young people in our evangelical churches today are going to have a profoundly difficult time with this. Because verse 11 and 12 denies all other religions except those with a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is extremely offensive in a pluralistic society like ours. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And in John verse 11, it says, The witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is located in only one place. Located only in His Son. And he who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Period. Black and white. One further point of clarification then. If regeneration is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is also connected with the term eternal life. And we must also qualify that we understand how the adjective eternal is being used here. Warning. The adjective eternal is not used of life the way it is used of God. Because when it's used of God, what does it refer to? God's eternality. That He is forever. Does that mean that somebody with eternal life has God's eternality? No. That would fracture what? The creator-creature distinction, wouldn't it? Creature always stays creature. Creature doesn't become creator. So, eternal life is not sharing the attribute of God's eternality. However, it's related to His eternality because back when we were going through the slide on the evil issue, if I can find that one here, what did we say God's program in history is going to do? He is going to come to a point in history where the, where the road forks, right? And what do we say about this period? When the road forks, can the two roads ever join again? No. There's no more transition. The day of good and evil mixture terminates when judgment occurs and the separation occurs. Therefore, question. Here's the creature. The creature started here at a point of creation. The creature goes on and on. Does the creature ever get annihilated or does the creature exist forever? The creature exists forever. It's sobering. And when this road occurs, this branch in the road, the good dwells with God as life forever and ever and ever. That's what eternal life is talking about. It's talking about the life that qualifies for eternal fellowship with God and it can never, ever be destroyed. 
Eternal life, once given, can never be destroyed. And this life goes on and on and on and on because it is divinely caused and it is brought about by God separating good and evil and keeping evil away from good forever and ever and ever. It's all tied in with this picture. Now this is why there's a passage in John that's very, very hard. And to get background so we get a running head start on it, let's remember something about the life of Jesus Christ. Because Pentecost comes in the sequence, doesn't it? It comes after Christ's ascension. The ascension comes after his resurrection. The resurrection comes after the cross. And the cross comes after his life. So there's a sequence. Now, if you look at this sequence, after Jesus died, he received what kind of a body? A resurrected body. Now, if you remember, Jesus, particularly in John, mentioned that there would be a two resurrections. There's actually many phases of it, but two categorical resurrections. The resurrection to life and the resurrection to damnation. Now, what is so... What is the resurrection of damnation? It means that everybody has a resurrection body. The resurrection body is the reason that people can exist forever and ever. I mean, the body that we have today. I mean, look at us. All our parts are wearing out. And the older you get, the more parts. And if you get to the end of your life with your original parts, you're doing great. Okay? So this body isn't it. So the resurrection body is the body that endures forever and ever and ever. And the horror, Jesus says, is you don't ever want to be part of the resurrection unto damnation. Because once you are resurrected to damnation, there never, ever is escape from it. I mean, it's so horrible to think about. No escape. You can't commit suicide as much as you would want to. You cannot commit, you cannot destroy your own existence. It goes on forever and ever and ever. But that, that kind of existence is not the life. The life is the resurrection unto life. And the life that is now we're talking about is defined in terms of number two in the life of Christ here, his life. The life that Jesus Christ lived, which was perfect in righteousness. You see, eternal life couldn't have been defined in the Old Testament because there wasn't a model for it. There was just a vague, the law calling obedience. But there was no model. Who in the Old Testament ever lived a perfect life? No one. So in the Old Testament, there's no model. So in the Old Testament, there really isn't a source of eternal life. Now, two things we reviewed about this life. Remember those hard doctrines? Kenosis and impeccability. And I said, when we reviewed kenosis, when we originally covered kenosis and impeccability, we were going to revisit them. So even though I know we had a lot of Q&A about it, um, I said that we were going to come visit. Well, tonight is when we come back and we revisit those two doctrines. Review one. Number one, doctrine of kenosis. What does the doctrine of kenosis say? It says that Jesus Christ gave up the independent use of his divine attributes. I say independent use. Doesn't mean he gave up his divine attributes. That would make him a creature. He never gave up his divine attributes. He gave up the independent use of them so that when Satan tempted him, so that when he encountered the crises and events in walking around like we walk around in our turf, 
getting his feet dirty in the same mud heap that we get our feet dirty in. When the Lord Jesus Christ walked around this earth, when he saw suffering, when he met death, when he was tempted in all points as we are, Jesus wasn't tempted. Yes, he was. He was tempted in all points like we are. What Kenosis says is that when he faced all those trials, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, and he, in effect, trusted which member of the Trinity to empower him? The Holy Spirit. Jesus relied upon the Holy Spirit point after point after point in his life, and that's why he says the Holy Spirit was with you. I'm here. Holy Spirit's with me. So, as the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus because Jesus himself in his humanity trusted him. And this is why he can be our priest. Remember that great passage in Hebrews encouraging us in our moments of trial and tribulation to pray because we have a high priest that can be affected by the feelings of our infirmities? Now, how could, I, how could Jesus be affected with the feelings of our infirmities if he never was tempted? How could he be feeling for your infirmities when you come to pray for him, with him, to him, through him? Um, how could he really enter in and empathize with what you and I are going through? Because he had to go through the same thing. He didn't get freebie rides because he was God the Son. So the doctrine of kenosis balances the idea that Jesus it was a free ride through this life and oh, he had it easy and all the rest. No. Okay, second doctrine we want to review is that second one there, impeccability. Remember that one? Jesus Christ was able not to sin and Jesus Christ was not able to sin. If you uh, look at the bottom of page 46, um, I state that Jesus Christ was both not able to sin and able not to sin. And you remember we had a big discussion about it and I pointed out to you that the word A-B-L-E, the verb is used with a different nuance. This is not a logical conflict here. There's a nuance of difference. You can think of it this way. His deity demanded that he was not able to sin. His humanity demanded that he was temptable, able not to sin. And therefore, putting the two together in one person, you get the fact that he was not able to sin, but he could be tempted. And how that works out, we don't know. All the fact is that because he was not able to sin, but was able to be tempted, means that he faced enormous pressures. Pressures far beyond anything that we can ever test. So, in the, in the gauge of, of pressure, he, he uh, was decades above us. Orders of magnitude above us in the kind of pressures he had to face. So this is why Jesus is not only a priest, Jesus is going to be our judge. And we come and we blow smoke, well, Jesus, you really didn't understand. I, it was just so hard. And, and he says, no, I understand, because I walk there too. And here's my evaluation of how you behave in that situation. Duh. See, we can't blow smoke in his face, because he walked here. And... He, he's going to be our judge. He's the standard. Now, let's turn in 1 John to chapter 3. Because we have a verse here that talks about the impeccability of eternal life. Very hard passage. Not easy. 
to understand. But if you don't approach it carefully, you get yourself in hot water real quick. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Now, in my translation, it reads what most people take it to mean. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, I don't know what your translation says there, but the word practices sin is an interpretation of the present tense of the Greek verb. So, what? let's break this down. Verse 9. No one who is born of God sins. The verb is to sin. And it's in the present tense which often means action that keeps on going. The one who sins, uh, the one who is born of God sins because his seed abides in him. That is regeneration. That is referring to the nature of Christ, the eternal life dwelling in the person. His seed abides in him and he cannot sin. He is not able to sin. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like the sinlessness of Jesus. They say, wait a minute. Whoa, hold it. John the Apostle just got through saying in chapter 1, if you turn over to chapter 1, he says... So now in 3, verse 9, it appears he's almost teaching a doctrine of perfection, but in chapter 1, verse 8, he's denying it by saying, we have sin. So now what do we do? Well, one of the ways it's traditionally done is to say the present tense in chapter 3, verse 9 means habitual sin. No one who is a real Christian habitually sins. Now, that approach has a problem, and it was pointed out many, many years ago by a Greek scholar at Dallas Seminary in the middle of a debate. He pointed out, if you're going to take the Johannine use of the present tense to mean habitual behavior here, you've got to take it to mean habitual behavior here and in all other places in the epistle. Now, in John 1.8, what would happen if we took the same idea that these people applied to verse 9 of chapter 3 and applied it instead of chapter 1, verse 8? If we say, say is present tense, if we continue to say that we have continuously no sin, we are continuously to deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin continuously. In other words, we could do it sometimes. I mean, it just doesn't fit. And what is worse is that if you take this thing, you get in an outright conflict because if you flip over to chapter 5, verse 16, look at this one. Chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and that's the, venial, that's the Catholic Church always gets venial and uh, mortal sin from that passage. Actually, it's talking about something else. But verse 16. If anyone sees his brother constantly committing a sin, well, now, wait a minute. In chapter 3, verse 9, it was said that no believer can habitually sin. So if you're going to take the present tense in 3, 9, how are you going to handle your problem over in chapter 5? Because now it's saying a brother, that's funny, who's a believer, right? 
and you see a brother who continuously sins, but it isn't under death. Well, clearly, John must not be using the verb quite that way. He must be using it another way. But the question is, we know John can't be teaching perfectionism, and we know enough about ourselves that we're not perfect. So, what, how do we resolve this? I like what Zane Hodges did with this because he shows that it can be solved by doing something that everybody recognizes in Paul's writings. If we turn to Romans chapter 7, to that famous passage where Paul is struggling with sin, you'll notice that Paul, Paul isn't John, and there is a difference in the vocabulary, these two writers, but they do a very similar thing. So let's leave John a minute. We'll come back to him in a few minutes. And let's go to Paul. And watch how Paul speaks. In Romans chapter 7, verse 20, here he is in the middle of that conflict passage. If I am doing the very thing that I do not wish, what is he doing? He's saying, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now what has just happened in verse 20? Let's look at that. That's a very, very important chapter. Take that language apart. Let's, 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 uh, let's unpack that sentence. If I am doing the very thing that I don't want to do, so now, Paul, this is Paul. Paul's doing this. He's saying, I am doing the very thing that I don't. He concludes that he can't be doing it. It's the force of sin in him that's doing it. Now, is this cheap? Is this some sort of a, a cop-out? No. Paul assumes responsibility for it. But there's a powerful point that's being made that the I, the real I here, is something to which sin is somewhat external and foreign. Paul is doing something here. Let's continue. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. So there's a two-nature thing going on. Their evil is present, but I wish to do good. Now, why does he wish to do good? Because he's regenerated. His seed abides in him. Is the seed constantly wishing to do good? Yes. Now, what's happening here? Sin has overtaken at his, he's responsible. We're responsible. Not denying responsibility. This is a conceptual way of looking at yourself in Christ. And it's extremely important. The exchange life people have, done, have mastered this. But it's not just, I mean, like, they're not the first people to do it. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. Notice location. In my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So Paul, the point that we could go on and on and on here, but for tonight's sake, all I'm pointing out is, do you see the conceptual break that in Christ, Paul is asserting that he has this inner man that this inner man, in fact, where's my battery? Hmm. Must have been playing with the cats too long. Um, the inner man, 
is something that wishes to do well, always wishes to do well, and that is the same thing that John is talking about because his seed abides in him. The two guys are talking about the same thing. And it's remarkable that the same translators who translate Romans 7 and have no problem whatever with Romans 7, all of a sudden hit 1 John 3 and slide in Greece all over the board. When John, in fact, is apparently doing exactly what Paul's doing. We'll come to John, back to John in a minute, but let's understand Paul. He's saying that when I become a Christian and I'm regenerated, I have been moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. And that is my fundamental change in identity. Now what all that involves is, is hairy and probably beyond our comprehension at this moment. But remember, this section of Romans started where? In Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And what was Romans 5:12 all about? The shift from being an Adam to being in Christ. And there's an identity that goes on here and that Paul can distinguish his evil doing from this whatever it is that's in him because now he's in Christ. And the picture that he has, because for many years I thought of it this way and I was wrong, it's not this, that the eye is sort of suspended between Christ and sin. And it's sort of flopping back and forth. That's not, that doesn't fit. What he's saying is the eye here is in Christ and this sin is in the flesh, in the body, in the fallen soul. But the fundamental I, the ego, is now identified with Christ. Now when sin happens, the decision has been made to abandon this nature as motive and as the, the pattern of righteousness and go along with sin and go along with the fallen nature of Adam that we have in the flesh. So, Paul, and by the way, uh, in the notes, I also cite um, Galatians 2, I think somewhere in there, I guess maybe I didn't, but Galatians 2.20, the life I live now, I live by the you know, faith in the Son of God. Um, Romans 7, before we move back to John, though, look at how he ends this. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, some have thought that Romans 7 refers to the struggle of the unbeliever. And the reason they, they try to do that is because they say, well, wait a minute, a believer has the Holy Spirit. I believe that Paul, in, in Romans 7, 20 through 24, is doing a teaching thing here. He's, he's as a wonderful teacher as he was, he's telling us, think through a trial that you have. And think about what's going on in your heart. Let's, let's do a little inner heart study here. He says, the, the new nature in Christ is wanting to do good. So all this is the effect of regeneration. That's wanting to do good. But the regenerate nature by itself can't subdue what? It can't subdue the sin nature without, what did Jesus rely on? The Holy Spirit. So, 
Regeneration, vital lesson here, provides the base of operations. If you are an electrical engineer and you like to think in these terms, regeneration sets up the new circuitry but doesn't provide the voltage. And regeneration establishes this new capacity, but the capacity is anemic without the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit because it's a little regenerated. I don't know, maybe it's, you know, if you could visualize it spatially, maybe it's the size of a quarter in your brain somewhere or, or in your nervous system somewhere, whatever this connection is where the spirit interacts with the material through the central nervous system. Somewhere in our central nervous system is this regenerate spirit. But the thing is, is encased in, in a pile of crap called the sin nature. And it cannot subdue it. And it's, it's encased in this. So what does it have to do? We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. And that's why the New Testament admonition, and that's why Romans 8 takes us right to the Holy Spirit because he becomes central in the whole discussion after Romans 7. Now let's go back and look and check with John, back in 1 John, and see if this does, approach doesn't resolve the problem. John says we sin. John is not teaching any sort of perfectionism by any means, by any way, or any stretch of imagination. John is not some naive guy who says that Christians don't sin. But in verse 9 of chapter 3, he's making an assertion about the regenerate nature. And he's saying the person who has been born of God regeneration. There's the term, born of God. No one who is regenerate sins because his, that's God's seed, abides in him. And he can't sin because he is born of God. Now what bothers people in verse 9, and that's, that's hard, is that the pronoun he is there. That makes it sound like all of us, he. But wait a minute. What was John doing in chapter 7, verse 20 of Romans? It's no longer who does it. No longer I that sins. Well, what's John saying? No longer I that sins. Same thing. So John in chapter 3, verse 9, is not fundamentally doing anything different than what Paul did in Romans 7. Both those fantastic teachers of the Word of God had the same concept that when regeneration occurs, the miraculous act of regeneration by the Holy Spirit shifts and alters in a profound way our whole identity. And that is why, um, that is why that in verse 10 he says, by this the children of God and children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, this is the word practice, anyone who doesn't righteous is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And this is the idea. We're out of fellowship and out of God. So, the idea is not something new, but it, I think it handles the problem of chapter 3, verse 9 a lot more linguistically honest way than the saying that, well, it's continuous sin. Of course, it's related to something else. 1 John, the entire book, can only be taken one of two ways. Either this whole book is an argument to distinguish... Christians from non-Christians or it is to distinguish Christians in fellowship and out of fellowship and that is fundamental in how you approach this epistle and obviously what I have said here tonight by this solution to chapter 3 verse 9 shows very well which view goes with this approach and that is 
that John, 1 John, is talking about fellowship. That's why he says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not a gospel invitation. That's an address to believers. And he's saying that we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from what? All. Just the sin that we confess or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's something that we'll get into in the fall is this issue of confession of sin, filling of the Spirit, and that sort of thing. But it's all predicated on this thing of Pentecost and what the Holy Spirit has done this side of Pentecost. Father, we thank you for our time this year. We thank you for the uh, hours of study in the Word of God and for the fact that you, as the Holy Spirit, comes to us, brings the text to us, and gives us that encouragement and that morale-boosting energy that the strength cannot and does not come from ourselves. But the moment we, in humble trust, realize that we can't do it, Paul couldn't do it, John couldn't do it, they all understood that they had to operate in their life exactly the same way Jesus in his humanity operated, namely, by the filling of the Holy Spirit. By walking by faith, trusting the one who did the birthing, the new birthing, is also the one who can empower that newly given, miraculously given nature. We thank thee now through the person of Christ our Savior. Amen. Okay, I guess we have people have left, we're going to leave, have left, so we'll open the floor for questions. No questions, absolutely clear tonight. <laughs> Well, it is. It's, it's, you have to really think it through. And the, um, the, the good question about John, it's not an easy passage, and it's not easy to sit, sit, uh, think it through. The problem there is, is the whole um, Johannine, first of all, the whole Johannine approach versus Paul's approach. The two guys use different vocabulary and use things differently. Um, one, of the, one of the, but... Like the Epistle of Hebrews, you'll find that internal to their own writings, they are very consistent. So how you, how you take one passage can't be um, isolated from how you take other passages that he writes. And this is why 1 John uh, is an extremely difficult book. It's short. It, it's deceptively simple on the first reading. But then when you think about it, it's a very difficult book. And it's difficult precisely because of what you said. Um, as I pointed out, you've got verses in chapter 5, you've got verses in chapter 1, that you've got to balance with chapter 3. And um, the only thing I can tell you is that um, 
you wind up taking one of two roads through John's epistles. Through, through, well, actually through the second and third one too, but it's more obvious in, in the first epistle. Either he is addressing and trying to define who Christians are out from those who merely profess. Or he is talking about something else. He is talking about abiding. Whether abiding, and that's a rotational term for John. Um, we didn't get into that. But uh, the word abide, meno, is either referring to being saved. Or it is referring to being in fellowship. And that the act of abiding or not abiding is in fellowship, out of fellowship, walking by the spirit, walking by the flesh. Or it's referring as the vine, because remember the word meno in 1 John is the same word he's using over in John 15 with the vine, the branches. Um, the question then is, is that salvation? If it's salvation, John 15 is going to be salvation in 1 John. So those passages are hooked together. So that's why this is not, uh, this is not easy stuff because you've got to correlate all those together. And that is an exegetical exercise, believe me. And there are people that take... But all I'm saying tonight is, after you spend hours dealing with this issue, going through the text and through the text and through the verb, you will always come to one of two conclusions. You can't mix and match, in other words. You will come to one conclusion. The abide in the vine and that sort of thing refers to salvation with no distinguishing comments internal to all the saved. All the saved are kind of lumped together versus the professing people who uh, flake out, that sort of thing. Or you're referring to the people who are Christians who are walking by the, by the Spirit and converting it into Pauline terminology because Paul used the same thing, walking by flesh. In fact, in Romans 8, if you watch this idea, now that we've talked it, read Romans 8 again. After, after tonight. Read Romans 7 and watch what happens when you go into Romans 8. You'll see passages that talk about mortal death. Uh, you'll talk about passages that he who does not um, walk by faith basically uh, do not mortify the uh, flesh, put it to death. Um, and who doesn't do that, uh, you know, dies, this sort of thing. Uh, you've got those mortality passages in Romans 8. So, those, those passages, plus John, 1 John 5, which is the analog, because remember I said in 1 John 5 that passage about the brother who sins, not a sin unto death, but does sin, a sin to death, don't pray for him. And the Catholic Church historically got their mortal sin and the venial sin out of that passage and other church fathers. Um, and so, the question then comes in 1 John 5, what's that talking about? What's the sin unto death there? Well, now you're back to discerning how does John use the word death? Is he talking spiritually or is he talking physically? And that in turn is linked to how you handle abide. How you see it's, So it's a whole bucket of words here that you've got to go together. And I, I warn you about that because you can't go in here and start jerking one verse around without tampering with all the other ones and, and dealing with vocabulary. So obviously the way I'm approaching it here is I... I'm taking the word death to literally mean physical death, and that is talking about physical discipline. And the same concept that is in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the idea that um, Christians can, and, and 1 Corinthians 11, 
Uh, the passages were usually read before communion services in most evangelical churches, uh, where people, the people who despise communion uh, are sick weekly, and some have gone to sleep. He's talking about divine discipline upon Christians, not upon unbelievers, upon Christians. And so there's a sobering dimension here that's suddenly introduced. And I understand the background where you're coming from, Debbie, uh, because people in that sort of background fear that by taking a fellowship approach, you open the door to licentious living. When if you pursue the matter further, you'll see that actually there's, a very, there's two dynamics that come out of this approach in both Paul and John. One dynamic is a negative one. And that is a fear. A godly fear comes out of that. Because if those passages talk about darkness, who, are walk, who uh, follow Satan, who are going to die, if those passages refer to Christians, it's talking about people who are disobedient and that Christians can check out of this life in a horrible way. Yeah, they're saved, but like Paul says, so is by fire. Not pleasant. And that a whole idea of significant and profound discipline upon disobedience in the Christian is a negative incentive. And it is an incentive that I believe protects against this idea that free grace is, you know, it's going to be to licentious living. There's another and second kind of motivation, which is a positive one, and I think very powerful positive one. If you go through Paul in Romans 7 and 8 and John with this, uh, this approach, what you find out is there's a powerful incentive to live the Christian life if you see and grasp your identity in Christ. Because now you're perceiving that you are part of a godly family and why are you acting like an ungodly family like you're not part of the family there's a there's a powerful motive in that rather than i've got to do this good thing i got to do that good thing because i got to prove to myself and got to prove to everybody that i'm a christian now, if you want that kind of approach you can go to the puritan writings because the puritans were doing that and uh, many of the puritans were doing that um, trying to prove that they were saved by doing every kind of good work imaginable, going through all kinds of exercises. The problem with that approach is this. Let's imagine, let's imagine ourselves uh, to be a, a drug addict or, or some, what we would call a chemically addicted person or this sort of thing. We've got this, this force in our life. And if my concept of the Christian life is that to have fellowship with God, I've got to grapple with this, hoping thereby to get some, eke out some victory to prove that I'm saved. It's one approach. Or do I see myself in the family of God to start with, and that this so-called besetting sin is not really part of my depth nature, and why am I therefore am I 
why is, am I letting this thing empower me? So actually it turns out, on, if you want to apply it from the practical side, I believe the fellowship approach has two powerful incentives. It has a negative one, a fear of discipline and loss of rewards. Paul says that, loss of rewards. And a positive one in seeing our identity in Jesus Christ. And that by being identified with him, with the resurrected Christ, the God of this world loses some of his allure. Uh, the roaring lion seeking who may devour suddenly doesn't become, I don't say he turns into a pussycat, but uh, it takes some of his fangs away. In, those, in, your, in your life and your heart when you grapple with this sort of thing is that, wait a minute, why am I afraid of him? I'm a child of the king. So you proceed against the impediment, against the addiction, against whatever the besetting sin is from a position of strength. Whereas if you take the, the classical reformed approach and say that I have to prove my salvation by the following fruit, and we become fruit inspectors. The problem with that approach is, while it sounds good on the surface, in actual day-to-day -day life and combat with besetting things, it doesn't really provide a motivation because you're never really sure of where you are. In order to be, to trust that God is going to help me in a trial, I have to have faith that he wants to help me. But if I am so, if I, in my identity, I don't see myself in Christ, it's so easy to now think of the fact that, well, you know, with all the stuff in my life, I'm sure he's not really too, too interested in me. Now, what does that do? If you're not really sure that God is wholly interested, it seems to me that innervates the whole energy for the Christian way of life dissipates it. Yes, Lord. other than keep preaching the gospel. Yeah. Well, yes, and uh, what Laura's bringing out here is, is something I hadn't thought about. But you know, that's interesting because if you have a situation uh, where you have a professing believer really messed up, uh, you've got to take one of two tracks. Now, we're not infallible. We can't see in the human heart. So the problem then is you may very well see someone who is not a believer. You may very well see someone who's not a believer. But the reason they're not a believer isn't necessarily because of that sin. The reason they're not a believer is because their heart has never been truly illuminated to the content of the gospel. That could be. And I, I, th this explains a lot of the so-called false professions. I believe it's very difficult in our age, probably for the last 40 years, to communicate a clear gospel to start with. 
I really believe that. And I think it's becoming increasingly difficult <clears throat> to present a clear gospel presentation. Uh, you know, apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, um, it's so discouraging to try to show God's grace when people don't understand sin. They don't understand sin because they haven't got a clue about the nature of God. Everything's what I feel, how I vote, what I think. No absolute truth. And it's in this muck that we are trying to preach the gospel. So right away we've got a problem here. We may well have a non-Christian, but again, it's not because of their sin. I may deal, for example, use a gross sin. Well, let's talk about homosexuals. I've worked with homosexuals. I don't look upon a person who's in homosexuality suspecting they may be a non-Christian because of their homosexuality. If they're not a Christian, it's not because of their homosexuality. It's because of what's going on or not going on or never had gone on in the human heart. And I think you uncover that by conversation. But in many cases, they are Christians. So now what do you do? Bang them over the head? I don't think so. The few, and in my experience, I had experience with two or three homosexuals, um, I've only known one of the three who's truly come out of that lifestyle, and it was because that person had, I believe, a correct concept of who he was in Christ. And I don't think the other guy, I don't think the other guy just had a good clue yet what's going on here. So, if we're child, if we're children of God and children of the King, that creates the powerful picture, the self-identity. Identity, I mean, not psychologically. The identity before, in God's sight of who we are. Now, if, we, if that isn't right, I don't know how you ever, personally, that person you're even trying to help, I don't know how you can help them if they don't get that right. They can't become a Christian in the first place unless they get the gospel right. And they can't deal with these besetting sins if somehow they can't see the truth of what it means to be in Christ. That's why that's so important. Anyway, in the fall, we'll continue so far. Um, we're going to deal in uh, the next... We're going to finish up IBS, so this be the indwelling Holy Spirit, which complements regeneration, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, putting us in union with Christ, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which shows us why He can't be taken away from us. Another argument for eternal security. So that's it for the summer. Have a nice...